the positive was it wasn't busy. At the other church, it was busy. I, I was meeting, so suddenly everything, it was just like turning down the dial. And that, in many respects, remained. In that church, I did not go to every meeting. I trusted people to do it. I, you know, I had an elder board meeting once a month and maybe something else, but I didn't, it just geared way back. And it was a choice I made uh, right at the beginning that I am not going to have my finger in everything. We have competent people and they'll get more competent if I keep my mitts off. And it was, it was positive. And that was the benefit. That was the secret benefit of the smaller church is there was space. I think I'm a writer today because I had space, uh, not just specifically to write, but to think, to read a book you know, to go home, to relax. I mean, I, there were certain benefits. Now, I know there are pastors in churches these days who are running ragged, and I'm not sure whether they ought to be or shouldn't be, but I I wasn't. And I'm very grateful for that because it was just a different environment. And that was a really positive thing. Welcome, my friend. This is the weekend edition of the Coaching for Pastors podcast. Hey, my friend, and welcome to this 14th weekend edition. And this is a really good one. I say that every week. I say that, but but they are. They're really good. And this one in particular, this one's different. I don't know that I've ever interviewed, had a conversation with somebody quite like our guest today, Lee Eckloff. Lee is a former pastor. He's retired. But he's very active in working with pastors and counseling and coaching and befriending pastors and ministry. He's got a website, leeeckloff.com, L-E-E-E-C-L-O-V, E-C-L-O-V, leeeckloff.com. Anyway, I get his emails. He writes these email encouragements, uh, these short little uh, articles, and Preaching Today sends them out, and he's been writing for a number of years. And I don't usually read these things that come. I delete, 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 delete. But for some reason, I started reading Lee's short encouragement emails to pastors. And I really started to get a lot out of them. And so at the end of the email, there was a, a place to contact. You could, I think there was an email address. And so I contacted him. I said, Lee, I would love to talk to you on the Coaching for Pastors podcast. And we did. And this is the conversation. Now, at the end, I'll give you a short update on the upcoming Coaching for Pastors Mastermind that I can't wait to put together. And after talking with somebody like Lee, I get even more excited about doing this. But this is a great conversation. I I really can't preface it in any way other than to say it's almost an hour long. Listen to the whole thing. Drink it in. Take the encouragement and the inspiration that Lee offers through his through his victories and through his vulnerabilities. It's really an amazing conversation. Here's my talk with Lee Eklov. Lee Eklov, I'm so excited for this conversation because you and I just worked all the gremlins out of the technology in the whole world in the last <laughs> half an hour. So this is going to be a good one. It's a good way of thinking about it. Absolutely. I mean, I, now, I mean, I've been sitting here wanting to talk to you, and so now I've just, I'm, I'm so excited. I don't know if our listeners know who you are. I know who you are because I've been reading your blog posts and your articles on preaching today through Christianity.com, and so I invited you to come on because 
I've really enjoyed it. So introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your ministry, and your family. Okay, thanks. Uh, I am a retired pastor. Uh, I now live in Rockford, Illinois, but I served in um, three churches, one in Deerfield, Illinois, uh, one in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, and then back again to the northern suburbs of Chicago in Lincolnshire, where I was for 22 years to the day. I'm from a rural church in South Dakota. My pastoring has been in medium-sized churches, I would say. Uh, my my last church was 200 on a good Sunday. So, and I, I'm a writer on the side, as you said, for preaching today from Christianity Today. I write a weekly column that's free, and it's uh, aimed at encouraging, bringing grace and wisdom uh, to pastors. So that's a, a wonderful um, opportunity. My retirement focus is on pastors, making friends, these things I write. I'm the author of um, some books, two in particular, Pastoral Graces, Reflections on the Care of Souls from Moody Publishers, and another one called Feels Like Home, How Rediscovering the Church as Family Changes Everything. And then the first batch of my columns, 52 of them were published by Christianity Today in a little book called Shepherding the Shepherds. So that's me. One for each week. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Slow readers. It's for slow readers. <laughs> it's only 600 words, so you can kind of, no pressure. Lee, we've had this 200 Churches podcast now for almost 10 years, and we've been telling pastors that it's not the size of the church that we need to focus on, but it's the health of the church. And once we focus on the health of the church, then the size takes care of itself. And you said you were in a church for 22 years mm-hmm. that on a good Sunday was 200. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're, uh, you and I talked some y- the other day, and I'd, l- I'd love to explore this with you because I've been trying to talk about the benefit of a 200 church. Yeah. There's so much in church growth culture that poo-poos that, you know, it's you got to break the 200 barrier, break. Right. So could I understand that in 22 years, you did not break the 200 barrier? For about six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. There was, there was a church that uh, went through a lot of distress, and uh, all of a sudden, it was crazy. All of a sudden, about 30 people showed up over uh. maybe two Sundays, and we retained some of them, and others you know, moved on to other things. But it was this, like... Oh man, we finally hit the big time here, right? Finally, we've waited and we waited and waited and waited, and finally, and then it kind of settled back down again. So I know that a lot of pastors in the, especially in the last twenty years, mm-hmm. uh, have they've really struggled with the size of the church and yep. church growth and all of that. Talk to me. Let's talk a little bit about how you thought about that and if you struggled and how you came to view those 22 years, because I've got a very particular opinion on all this, but I'd love to hear yours. Well, it was a, it was a significant challenge. Uh, the church I pastored in Western Pennsylvania over 14 years grew from uh, uh, 200 and something to maybe 650. So that was, that was okay. And uh, I'll tell you an interesting thing. After we moved, to this other church, which when we pastored in the northern suburbs, as I always said, I was in the land of the giants. We had big churches all around us, starting with Willow Creek. Yeah. And others, you know, multi campus, they were all around. And so it stood to reason to me that when I go there, you know, I'm a good guy and I can preach well and all that. So then 
our church is going to get big. Well, it didn't. It was interesting that in for a long time, if I met a pastor, I'm talking to some guy, and he'd ask me about my church, I'd say, uh, yeah, we've got about 175, but I used to pastor a church of 650. Hmm. I always had to say that to give legitimacy to myself. Yeah, And I struggled with this a great deal that here I was in this place in the burbs, you know, people everywhere. I was a mile from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. We were the closest church. You'd think that would draw in people. And uh, our elders felt we had a healthy church, but it didn't get bigger. And it was, in my Jeff, I got depressed. I had to see a counselor. Uh, it it messed mm. with my head because just as you're saying, the measure of success for us, no matter what anybody says, is sort of how big is your church? And uh, it was really hard. Uh, as years passed, I gradually, by the grace of God, got a better perspective. One part of that was how much more pastoring I could do at that size. And even having been in a church of 650, I had seen the difference where I had to start hiding from people. I couldn't couldn't be known by all those people. Yeah. And I was doing much more administration. And uh, I like that. I like administration. But it was, it was different. And my creativity, especially, I'm kind of a creative guy. I found that that was being stifled because I was just, you know, as we say, running the church all the time. Yeah. So that was a part. I realized that I was really doing more. I also realized, I remember one day I was thinking about Willow Creek, and this was before they had all their troubles and everything. And I thought, you know, there's a way in which a pastor like me in a sort of average-sized church, there's a way in which I have more influence than Bill Hybels did. Mm -hmm. And my rationale was, I know everybody. Every child knows me. They'll never forget me the rest of their lives. Right. And they all meet me and talk to me. And Hybels couldn't do that. These big church pastors, I don't fault big church pastors. God sets that up. But, you know, you, you, you naturally think that if I could preach to a thousand or two thousand, I'd have more influence. But that's not necessarily true. Uh, you kind of influence a corner of people's lives. Whereas the pastor of a church where you know your people, you influence a, a whole swath of their lives in a whole a different way. So uh, you in your church in 22 years, you had babies born, they lived their whole growing up years with the same pastor, and they left and went off to college, and the same pastor was still in their church. Right. And Which is powerful. It's very powerful. We had an unusual situation because this church, unlike most— was highly um, a high degree of uh, turnover because of where we were. We had students who came and gone, so we actually didn't have very many children grow up in the church because they their parents would come, you know, mm. and they'd live in the area and you know maybe go to school or have a you know entry level job, and then they get transferred. We had corporate, and then we had at the other end we had retirees who you know kind of move away because it was really expensive. Yeah, and um, I learned early on in that setting. I got to put a good face on this because it's discouraging for the church, you know, to see these people <laughs> always um, leaving. And they were great people. I mean, think of that. These are leaders, right? These are people who jumped in and did stuff. And all of a sudden, graduation comes or the transfer comes and they retirement or whatever, and they move away. And we're, oh, another gap, another gap. So I started using the language, we put our fingerprints. Our ministry is to put our fingerprint on the people who come and then they go. Yeah. And at my farewell, 
they unveiled this big th picture on an easel and it was my thumbprint. Mm. And in the thumbprint, in the whorls and loops of that thumbprint are a thousand names that came through our church in 22 years. It's an amazing thing. You know, I was going to say, when you said that there was a high turnover rate, I was thinking about this this morning as I was anticipating this this conversation, that they say that there's a 15% attrition every year in a typical church, mm -hmm. which, which means you have to grow by 15% exactly. just to stay there. And probably in your church, maybe it was 20 or 25% yes, attrition every quite, year. Quite often it was 20, yeah. And that's that's a lot. That's a we, lot. Did, we did a deal once, Jeff, where uh, for five years, I asked my uh, assistant to look back, and over a f we looked at our church directories, and over a five-year period, we lost 261 people. Now, remember our attendance? <laughs> our attendance is 175. We lost 261 people, and we gained 261 people on the Oh, button. my. Isn't that crazy? That is, Yes. That is crazy. And that's that's not like a rural church where you've got the same people there. Right. You know, week after week for decades. Right. That's a very different. It's a yeah. completely different animal. Yeah, I grew up in a rural church and some of those folks are still there. I've been gone, you know, for over 50 years. So, yeah. You look at the impact that you had on a thousand people, right, for over mm -hmm. all that time. And I also pastored in a church of exactly the same size. On a, on a good Sunday, we'd have, we got in the 220s a couple times, but mm -hmm. it was generally between 180 and 200. And I was there for 14 years. Mm -hmm. We also had a college in the town. Yep. So I would tell our people that we get to, we get to mentor and train and disciple these young people. And then we send them out and they go all over the world. Exactly. Our church has an impact all over the world because of what we do for four years in the lives of young people. Exactly. I thought that was fantastic. So here's, here's what I thought, Lee. If you took all of the churches our size, 175 people, and you, you started adding up the amount of money given to missions, the amount of times the pastor or church leaders would be in somebody's home, for comfort, encouragement, counsel, crisis, the ministry that they did in the community, the kids' lives that they changed through their children's programs, you know, the, the, the missionaries that they supported and the, the contacts they made with missionaries. You started adding up all that ministry, and, and you've got the bulk of what the church is doing in the country and around the world. That's right. If you've ever read Christian Schwartz's book, Natural Church Development. I use some of that material, but I never read the book. Yeah. 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 One of the things that they did is they studied a church of 3,000 and then 10 churches of 300. Huh. And they, they saw that actually 10 churches of 300 had higher per capita rates for things like ministry involvement, small group involvement, money given to, to missions and, and hmm. a tithe. All these things, and 10 churches of 300 are better. That's better than one church of 3,000. That's cool. In terms of, yeah, in terms of per capita involvement in following Jesus. Yeah. It's just the way that is. So pastors that are listening, I think, are really encouraged by this. Tell us more about this transition from a large church 
to a small church. Mm-hmm. Tell us about uh, you know how that came about and why you felt comfortable to do that. Well, I had been in one church for 14 years. I was in my mid-40s. The church was good. I found myself sort of, I don't want to say autopilot, that's not fair, but I was felt like I was kind of doing the same things over and over. And I had in my head, honestly, that once in my life, I needed to do a really hard thing. Hmm. And the church I ended up being called to was really a mess. I mean, uh, my predecessor, let's just say, had done badly. And uh, so the church was really hurting. And it was hard. It fulfilled that. It fulfilled that expectation. And uh, uh, and I, I, there were positives. I felt called there. Uh, you know, there were different things. I had kind of an attraction to this to the business community. I liked that world, and this church was mm-hmm. in the thick of that. I happened to, you know, be right back near a seminary in college, which I really enjoyed the students and stuff. And uh, eventually got to teach uh, a little bit. So that that was really positive. But the transition from that side, one size to the other, and when it didn't take off, that was hard. I, I started in, that, the, in uh, the Village Church of Lincolnshire in uh, February, 1st February. I immediately began sitting over coffee in the mornings thinking, now, in our small building, how are we going to accommodate seven or eight hundred people? Mm, yeah, and I'm I'm plotting this. I'm thinking, all right, we're going to have two services by the fall, and it was, none of it happened. And uh, as that sort of s- sank in, uh, it was dis- disorienting to me uh, and uh, discouraging because, as we said, you know, the sort of the measure of our work is if we get bigger. And especially in the suburbs. I mean, when I grew up in this rural church in South Dakota, you really couldn't get bigger. There, there weren't right. people around. But there's yeah. no excuse, right? <laughs> no excuse in the suburbs. And um, I found it, you know, I remember going there. And we had um, our previous, I'm a, I'm a musical guy. So in our previous church, we had a lot of music of different sorts. We used all kinds of different things. You know, we had concerts and stuff like that. I go to this new church. They had two pianists, a song leader. There were no screens. This is 1998. There were no screens. There were uh, no other instruments. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I remember saying to God, just about like this, I says, how do you expect us to worship like this? And, <laughs> and God says, excuse me. <laughs> and uh uh, but it was uh, it was this adjustment of everything getting down. I remember one early on, one of the first weeks there, sitting in my office. There was nobody around. You know, I'd come from you know I had staff around, so, and I remember thinking, you know what? I don't believe anybody else is going to pick up the trash if I don't do it. Hmm. It was just it, it was really difficult and um, an adjustment. The positive was it wasn't busy. I mean, you know, at the other church it was busy. I, I was meeting. So suddenly everything, it was just like turning down the dial. And that in many respects remained in that church. I did not go to every meeting. I trusted people to do it. I, you know, I had an elder board meeting once a month and maybe something else, but I didn't, it just geared way back. 
And it was a choice I made uh, right at the beginning that I am not going to have my finger in everything. We have competent people, and they'll get more competent if I keep my mitts off. Yeah. And yes. it was it was positive. And that was the benefit. That was the secret benefit of the smaller church is there was space. I think I'm a writer today because I had space, uh, not just not specifically to write, but to think, to read a book, you know, to go home, to relax. I mean, I, there were certain benefits. Now, I know there are pastors in churches these days who are running ragged, and I'm not sure whether they ought to be or shouldn't be, but I, I wasn't. And I'm very grateful for that because it was just a different environment, and that was a really positive thing. We've had Dave Jacobs on our podcast uh, dozens of times, and he's he coaches pastors of small churches. And he tells them to start with start their schedule, make a schedule for the week of thirty five hours, mm. and and just start with that because his presupposition is that it's going to expand. And when you set it at forty five or fifty hours, it's going to expand, and you end up being tired. You don't have time to think. You don't have time to read. You know, you don't have time to do these things, and. Um, and so, yeah, I I think that is a benefit. It's a benefit, though, that if you've never come from a larger church, you feel like, oh, I want more activity. I want more, right. you know, I want more right. hustle and bustle. But you were able to appreciate that, you know, right. going going from one size to another. Yeah, and I like, you know, I like activity. I, I missed things, especially in the musical realm. You know, I miss those yes big things. And, uh, you know, right now is vacation Bible school season. I'm actually helping, but we've got one more night to go. I think I can, <laughs> I think I can make it. <laughs> you almost got taken out two nights ago, right? I did. I got beaned by basketballs, but, but <laughs> I remember at the, at the, when we moved to Lincolnshire, we had vacation Bible school for a couple of years. We just didn't have enough kids. And the neighborhood was not like ones where I'd grown up where, you know, you'd go to the Lutheran Bible school and then <laughs> and the yeah. Presbyterian. You know, we didn't, they didn't do that. This was a rich, secular neighbor. And we just dropped it. We just let it go. And uh, we came up with other ways to minister to children that were creative and everything, but they didn't require any of my time. So there were things I missed. You know what I missed the most from the two churches was I love to preach, and I invest a lot, 12 to 15 hours a week in sermon preparation. What I missed was two services. Ah, yes. That, I, I always missed it, because if you're going to do all this work, the yep. joy for me was the preaching of it, and I only got to do it <laughs> once. That's what I missed the most. Yeah. I'm just the opposite of you in that I went from the church of 175 to a church of 500. Oh, yeah. And... The Church of 175 had really good music, actually. Oh, we had interesting. all kinds of different instruments. It was a college town, oh, and sure. it was a musical college. And right. so the whole community had a culture of music in the grade school all the way up through. And most people driving down the street knew how to play an instrument of one wow. sort or another. And we had a lot of involvement in that. And what we have now is is fantastic. It's great, but it's not orchestral, right? You know, there's not like we used to have a Sunday with brass. We'd have a uh, just because there were all kinds of people, musical people in the community, right? But what right. so what I found is uh, 
the good thing coming to a church of that size at in my fifties is that like you, I realized, yeah, I don't need to have my, my hand in every cookie jar, you know, let, let people just do it, let them run with it. And if, I mean, if I, if I run everything, then when I leave, who's going to run it? Exactly. Right? They got to find another pastor to do that. That's right. And one of the blessings of going from the, my last church to this one has nothing to do with size is that it was a real peaceful transition for my last church. Mm-hmm. Everything was positive. It was good. Things were healthy. And it was one of those, you know, idyllic good times to leave. And uh, so I really, I really enjoyed that. So when you, uh, when you were getting uh, ready to retire, mm-hmm. talk to us about the timing of your retirement. You and I talked about this the other day. Yeah. I, I retired uh, right after my 69th birthday. And for me, it was a, um, oh, I'd say an emotionally difficult uh, thing. I I hadn't ever made a plan. I didn't particularly have any interest in, in doing succession planning. That's become much more fashionable in more recent years. I never heard of that when I was young. Yeah. But I just didn't feel that was right for us. I, I just didn't pursue that. There was just a set of circumstances where basically my elders said, we need a plan. And I didn't want to make a plan. Hmm. You know, I, they backed off, uh, you know, it was just, just give us some idea. You know, we even agreed not to even talk about it for a year. But once the idea was in my head, it was kind of a worm, you know, it just, it wouldn't let go. And I, I was literally angry inside at nobody. I just, at, the idea, because I didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, there was there was a side of me that I was as good a preacher as I'd ever been. I was a good pastor. I could manage, you know, the size. I was loved. Nobody was had their hands on my back or anything. But I remember sitting in my. I, I was a part of a, a, a group of pastors, small group of maybe five, six, and we met every other week. And I remember sitting with them one morning, and um, one of the guys says. You know, I think our theme for next year is going to be such and such. And another guy goes, you know, our, that's interesting. Our emphasis is going to be on this. And I thought to myself, I don't have that. I'm not doing that anymore. Hmm. I, I, The people wouldn't know the difference, or most of them anyway. But I am not moving them. I'm not helping them. I don't have a, you know, I don't have that energy. And it was sobering. It was frustrating. It was sobering. So it took me several months of this sort of, I, I I had this mental picture of peering around a, a corner, like of a a brick building, and I'd peer around the corner and look down the street, and it was pitch black. And then one morning, looking around, and here was a little light, and it was like, well, maybe, you know. And it took quite a while. I mean, it was a year after that when I retired, so it took a while. I would say the one mistake I made, it wasn't a bad one, but uh, it wasn't great, was I announced to our elders in June of that year I was retiring and told the congregation 1st of August, and I didn't actually step down till the 1st of February. That was a long time. It was a long time for me to kind of keep the energy up. You know, the advantage was you can do all these last things in a sort of a leisurely way. You can preach the sermons you really wanted to get in one more time and, and uh, you know, pray with people. And, uh, you know, there was some really great things. And the church was terrific to me, terrific. But in the end, it might have been 
better for everybody if I had shortened that up a little bit. And yeah. and I I had gotten a sense of focus of all right, what am I going to do when I get out of here? I don't want to, you know, hear people. I'm never going to retire. And go, well, yeah, I get that, but you're also never going. You're not going to be. You're not going to be the pastor you once were. You know, if you're 70 years old. I mean, face the music here. I can do some things. <laughs> you know, I can do some things better, but there's other things. I couldn't anyway. I can't speak for anyone else. Yeah. But I felt like God gave me a, a kind of a growing focus on what I was going to do. And other guys do that. You know, other pastors, I shouldn't say just guys, but other pastors who uh, get a sense of I'm going to do an interim, I'm going to be an interim pastor or or I'm going to disciple people or I'm gonna, whatever they're going to do. For me, it was to focus on pastors. I'm going to be, I'm going to make friends with pastors. I'm going to write for pastors. I get a chance to speak to pastors or do small groups. I've done quite a few of these. Uh, like I just call them pastors gatherings of twelve to fifteen for a day, and uh, I've done in person and virtual. So those, I, I found things that satisfy me, but don't require so much strong leadership. Wow, Lee, you, you you've been very uh, transparent there, and I appreciate that because. Too often we don't we don't hear those stories, you know. We we hide those, you know, the frustration, the 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 anger, you know. I've I I'm just fifty nine, and I sense a little. I could see how you could get a little angry as you got older, because on the inside you know you are as wise as you've ever been. You know, you're as experienced as you've ever been. And yet, from the outside, you look older and you are older. And you're like, well, this is a dirty trick. It it is. Yeah, it is. And your energy level isn't the same mental energy as well as, you know, just physical energy. I just don't want to go to all these meetings anymore and all that. Right. And, uh, well, Part of it is you realize it's not necessary. Right. It, it's not going to make any difference. In fact, you could actually hurt the church right. by continually trying to run everything and organize everything. Yeah, when a guy gets a, a when a pastor gets a sabbatical, that's a lesson churches learn. Right? They see this person's gone for you know three months or something, and well, yeah. Look at that. We, <laughs> we we made it through. I mean, the meetings happened and good stuff worked out. And I had a sabbatical once. I got a letter from somebody and, you know, it was it was real nice. We missed you and everything. We, but they added, but now we do get to Ponderosa before the Methodists. <laughs> <laughs> I am a little long-winded. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's funny. So for, for pastors who are struggling like you did, mm-hmm. To the point where you needed to go to counseling. Yeah. How could you help them to understand what maybe you didn't understand then? Hmm. What well, What were some of the things that you realized that that helped you to say not just not just to accept a bad situation, but to view it in the in the proper light and realize this isn't a bad situation. Right. This is actually there's good ministry to be done here, and this is worthwhile and worthy of uh, feeling really good about. Yeah. The first time I went, I went twice. Um, the first time, it was only, uh, as I recall, one or two times, a couple times maybe. And 
I was new to Lincolnshire and I was struggling. I was getting depressed. And uh, I remember the counselor, we talked about where I'd come from and all the stuff that had been happening. And now this church, they're just, you know, when you, I mean, every pastor of a smaller church knows you only have so much human capital to spend. I mean, if you're going to do yeah. this, you can't do that. And I remember him saying, Lee, you're like a Corvette engine in a Corvair body. <laughs> and I had to just, just, that was just hard. I just had to slow down. I couldn't, all my creative juices just weren't going to be, you know, <laughs> satisfied. That was one thing. And it, you know, I, I found my level with that. The other time I went was much more difficult. I, an elder came to see me who was himself a, a counselor, a therapist. And he, he came in and he sat down and he says, okay, I don't know how to say this, Lee, but, and these were his very words. He says, you're depressed and you're angry and you need to see somebody about it. Hmm. And I knew that, but I didn't know anybody else knew it. I had thought about even, I, I maybe should talk to somebody. I couldn't imagine who to talk to. Who'd, who'd be safe, right? Right, right. And and it it was so funny because in that moment when he said it, I knew immediately some name. I knew a guy that I should see. I didn't know him personally. I just heard of this guy. And for me, the rub at that point was much deeper. It was that, and I'm sure other pastors can relate to this. I was afraid of what I called the mess. The mess was something in the church. It didn't even have to involve me but two people who aren't getting along. Any place where there was anger, a, a board meeting that got tense, messed me up. Uh, you know, I could come out of board meetings and I'd have a chairman who worked in like, uh, say an executive coach or, or counseling or something. I had a chairman that did these jobs and they'd go, that was a great meeting tonight. Man, we had really good interaction. And I'm going home thinking, I'm messed up. I feel rotten about this meeting because I was tense and all this. They didn't see that as a liability. And um, uh, he helped me to identify this thing in me that couldn't tolerate people being disappointed with me. And they weren't even disappointed. It was the thought of it, right? Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't fighting battles, uh, but it was just, you know, I'd, go to the mailbox or see an email from somebody that I couldn't figure out what was up and I'd be anxious. Now, now who's mad at me? And people weren't usually mad at me. I never got the nasty letters that a lot of pastors get, but it still did mm -hmm. a number and I needed a counselor for that. And that took me off and on over probably six months. And it, it, you know, it was all, it's still kind of a problem, but I, it got better because I understood it better. And uh, I felt like the Lord you know, gave me wisdom and talking about it is useful to other pastors. It's part of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you remember any part of that when you say you understood it better? Mm -hmm. Can you remember any like yeah. kind of revelation that helped you to understand that? And you were like, oh, oh, this is what's happening. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I didn't grow up in a, I grew up in a healthy place. I didn't have, you know, lots of fights. In fact, I never saw, never saw a fight in my home. It would have been better had I seen that, you know, seen. I was just going to say, was that the problem? It, it didn't help. Uh, it didn't help my marriage mm. either because I just never saw a fight. So if we had a fight, it was like, oh, man, we're going to get divorced here, right? I mean, it was. Mm. But I think for me, 
it was just this um, uh, this overachiever side of me that means everything's got to be cool. Everything's got to be all the gears have to be well oiled. Uh, you know, everybody's got to get along. And I I remember when I first was getting to know this concert, he was asking about me and everything. And I had mentioned to him that one of the things I thought I was sort of naturally good at was problem solving. So later in one of these conversations, he said, well, I was talking about some mess and he goes, well, now you told me you were a good problem solver. So what happens when there's a problem that's upsetting you? And I thought, oh, well, I go, well, I usually figure it out. He says, so you're really anxious about this, but you're actually pretty good at it. And that little thing was like, yeah, I guess that's true. And the fact that I don't like it doesn't mean that I can't handle it. And the fact is that most people don't like conflict. I mean, who, who likes it? You know, some people cope with it better than others. That helped me. That little bit helped me. I'll tell you another thing I learned, Jeff, in that process. Ironically, during this time, I was actually teaching pastoral counseling in seminary. And I I don't make any claims to yeah. having been good at it. I don't know why in the heck I got picked for this, but I was doing it. So I'm <laughs> I'm going to see a counselor and I'm watching somebody do what I've never had anybody really I, I never really learned very well. And the one thing was the power of his listening. Because I would say something, you know, I'd try to explore something and I'd kind of run it out till I had, you know, said what I was gonna say. And he just sit and wait. And he, by waiting, he signaled to me, is there anything else? So I would sit there in yeah. the silence and think, well, there's this. And I'd say that, you know. And that listening gave me space to sort out an awful lot of stuff myself. Now, I'm sure God's spirit was in that, you know, helping me with that. And what I've realized is, as past, when I taught counseling, that was the big learning curve, the importance of listening. It's not some kind of Freudian deal. It's not just Rogerian, you know. This is just to have a person. Why couldn't I do that by myself, right? Why couldn't I just sit by myself and say as much as I could say and then go, now, where was it? I don't know. But it, it, it's different when there's a person in the room. And I think that's the same thing that happens with good prayer. There's another person in the room. Mm -hmm. And I think when we're quiet enough and slow and patient enough to just be quiet with God and to talk things out and to wait and think and listen with him listening, that is you know, sacred therapy. And it's also the ministry of good counseling. A lot of times, it just be quiet. I remember seeing this. Uh, thing for counselors and stuff, uh, this acronym, WAIT, W-A-I-T. Why am I talking? <laughs> hmm. Wow. That's good. Yeah, we had a guy on that uh, has a has kind of an emphasis in ministry on asking questions. Oh, yeah. And he talked about the four best questions. Uh, and that's a crazy thing is I don't remember exactly what the first question was. It was something like, uh, what do you think about this? Mm. And then the next three questions were, and what else? And what else? And what uh, else? That's really good. I like that a lot. <laughs> and it's essentially what you yes. just said. Yes. What you just said. Right. And, Whether you ask the question or the silence I ask the questions. Yes. And there were points, you know, where I'd kind yes. of exhaust the subject and I'd say, 
think that's all I got. And he go, okay, then let's move on. And we'd talk about something else, you know, but it's a powerful thing. You hear about it and, you know, we pastors, we're, we're into telling people stuff. And, you know, you come and you tell me your problem and I think of scripture or, you know, that would help and talk about and tell you the scripture that would help. And the irony is quite often the scripture we think would help might not actually be the scripture that would help because we didn't listen long enough to hear what was actually there, what was actually the issue. And, and ironically, sometimes, I mean, there's times where people really need you to say, thus says the Lord. I, I absolutely believe that. I get that. But there's also these times, and, and my counselor exemplified this, of just just wait. There's a lot inside of people that can sort stuff out, think right. Mature Christians mostly are able to think biblically. I mean, not always, but often. Just give them some space and, and a, an environment that's encouraging. The question that I asked, and now I'm listening to you so much that I don't know if I if I heard the answer, <laughs> and have just got my whole my mind is thinking about all kinds of different things. But uh, something that a pastor who's struggling with this whole size of his church thing, wondering if it's really making an impact, did you answer that question? Eventually, you know, when I could look at past over the years and thought about influence and would hear people who'd gone away talk about not just that they missed the people, but this church really made a difference in their spiritual walk with Jesus. But honestly, Jeff, there's a side where you go, you just trust. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Hmm. We have to be a little careful. We say your job is just to be faithful. Well, yes, but you have to be smart faithful, right? I mean, you have to be capable faithful. You can't just show up every day. You got to do more than that. You know, I think about the significance of preaching, uh, the investment I made, that was right. The necessity, especially in a smaller church where you, you can't just sit in your office all the time. You can't just sit and, you know, I love, I'm a task guy. I love crossing stuff off do lists. But, and I, you know, I wasn't out, I mean, in the suburbs at least, I don't know, it's different in the farming community, but I couldn't just go around and you know, visit people at work or something or drop in their homes. But right. but there was a pretty high degree of relational connection. Uh, I think I could have done that better. I learned as I got le- later, you know, in ministry. But uh, I think I did come to see, you know, the this, this slow, steady work of pastoring and the power of influence, uh, of spiritual influence, of, you know, knowing people's names, uh, I mentioned the second book I wrote on uh, the church. It was titled Feels Like Home. And I, for me, Jeff, one of the realizations was that while everything I read about church leadership, everything, literally everything I read was about mission, which is understandable. We have the Great Commission. We have Great Commandments. We have these, these things, you know, what's your focus, goals, all that. The fact was that inward, inwardly for me, that was never strong motivation. I believed it, and I think it's right, and I think it should be a motivation. But emotionally, it didn't resonate with me like it does with other people. And what actually resonated when I sorted it out was environment. I was motivated to create an environment. Some of that goes back to this business where I wanted everybody to be peaceful. I'm going to create a 
you know, peaceful place, you know, nobody's mad at yeah. each other, which is kind of feels like yeah, home, right. right? Where there was no fight. And some of that's a fool's errand. I mean, this is the nature of <laughs> of human beings, right? But but I realized that this worked for me because a church that feels like a family and not just um you know, you gotta be careful because you can be ex- exclusive then, exclusionary. Uh, yeah. but a church with that high turnover that was, we fought, we really worked at this, how to welcome people in and all that and all kinds of things we did. That environment created the right kind of environment for mission, missional thinking, whether it was evangelism or whether it was just, um, care, you know, care ministries or your place in the community. It just makes healthier people. Basically. It's not even about the stuff you do. As a church, it's you, you're creating healthy Christians, and then they go and do what healthy Christians do in their jobs or wherever you know. So I spent a lot of time working in that direction, finding ways to make that true. From the moment somebody walked in our door, we were we were really good at that. We worked at that at at not just being you know. I always said we're not just trying to be friendly; we're trying to make friends. This guy comes in on Sunday morning, and by the time he want, leaves, if he wanted us to, we made friends. We talked to him. We didn't look right past them. We engaged them, had a couple of calls. I mean, we really made it our business to do that. And then after that, the whole realm of things. You know, uh, sometimes a church that's super mission-oriented, they're putting all their energy toward um, outreach or whatever, and care ministries kind of go by the wayside it's it's expensive you know it's costly takes time to bring meals and line all that up and take care of the outliers and the difficult people but i came to believe that's uh, you know it's not my favorite thing to do but that's that's what we do that's our job that's what the church does and uh we saw during covid we thought in many of our churches that we were doing pretty well at loving one another And then God kind of took us into the wilderness to see what was in our heart, as it says in Deuteronomy 8, and to see if we would obey his commands. And we sometimes did great and sometimes did awful uh, because we found out these people who were used to be happy to shake each other's hands on Sunday morning and, you know, pray for whatever went over the perching. They would fight and they would do damage, terrible damage. They'd leave over stupid stuff. That's what we ran into. We found out they don't really love each other like we thought they did. We didn't know we weren't embedding that command into the environment of our congregation. We didn't know. Well, now we know. Interesting. That's very interesting. In light of your book, mm-hmm. Feels Like Home. Mm-hmm. What's the t- what's the whole title of that book? Again? How, uh, Feels Like Home, How Rediscovering the Church as Family Changes Everything. The Church as Family. Yeah, I th- I think I just read something recently, whether it was a blog post or an article, where the person was saying, basically making the point, you know, don't call the church family. That's the wrong thing to do. It's not a family. It's a group of people banded together, you know, on mission. And hmm. if you expect it to be a family, you're always going to be disappointed. That's, so. that's not true. I mean, think right? brother, brother and sister language. One of the things I learned, I I wouldn't have known this, but to hear it elsewhere, that the language of brother and sister was unheard of in the cultures around the early church. 
Jewish, mm. Jew, a Jewish, Greek, or Roman. Their brother and sister was a blood relative and nobody else. When Jesus says, these are my mother and my brother and my sister, that was radical. So when we read in the New Testament, all the brother-sister language, that's common to us, you know, band of brothers and, you know, the team or whatever. That was not yeah. common. And it is, uh, you know, we're, we're called the household of God. Um, God, I, I remember for many years, I thought that the household of God was one of the metaphors for the church, like bride and body. That's not a metaphor. We actually are God's family. We actually are his household. We actually are brothers and sisters. We are the bride of Jesus. That's powerful stuff. Uh, the very taking of communion, right, is not only Godward, but you know, horizontal. It's, it's relational. And we were able to take it for granted, like I said, when things were hunky-dory. We had our dinners and we had, you know, we sang together and all that stuff that was nice. But when we got stressed big time, partly just by absence and partly be, by controversy, we just kind of, you know, God took the measure of us. How did you manage through that time in your pastoral leadership, Lee? Well, I retired. <laughs> <laughs> so you never did get to the, the timing that, I mean, the yeah. timing in terms of the culture I, of your retirement. I, I Yes, I, I retired just ahead of COVID, so I didn't have to face it. But I was aware, not so much because of fault, like we became aware of during COVID and, and politics and everything, but I was really aware of just because of all the transition we were facing, that strong relational life in the church was not a given. Uh, you know, the church I grew up in, everybody knew each other for ages. We saw the same people all the time. Nobody left and nobody came. And, uh, but here were, you know, like you, I was in a church where there was this stuff happening. And I, I knew as a pastor, I got to bind, help bind these people together. And so I, I laid much more emphasis on, um, relational stuff. I was very conscious of like brother, sister language. I wanted our worship services to have a, an element of, uh, humanity, you know, a smaller size church. One of the advantages is a worship service. Um, in large churches, you are one of a lot of people. You don't have any sense that I go with these people. I don't see these people anywhere else. We don't. I don't know their names. The guy next to me, I might not know. And then there has been this trend, of course, in big churches to turn off all the lights and turn up all the music so you neither can see nor hear the people around you. Well, that has some, you know, benefits, I, I think, but what it loses is any sense at all of community. I don't even, I've been in those churches. I'm a singer. I don't even sing because I can't even hear myself. And it's not that I'm old fashioned and object to loud music. That's not it, but it's not community. So in a smaller church where you just don't have all, you just don't have that stuff. You can't, you know, I, I just think there's stuff you can do in worship services that are just more relational, more, more family. We had a, a little line, I can explain sometime, but uh, I, I, I said, we will paint with the colors God gives us. We will use everybody we can in a worship service now and then. I mean, 
you know, if, if, uh, if you play a harp, we'll find a way to use a harp. You talked about the instruments you had, you know, mm-hmm. yes. we're not trying to be cool. We're trying to be our family. And if a visitor comes and sees us being a good family, that's how God wants us to be cool. We would just have, I would work at, it was a conscious choice to be a little more informal, a little more personal, to use names. There's a lot of things, but that's some of what we did. Yeah, and I resonate with that, Lee. In fact, we had never met each other, spoken to each other. I had been reading your blog and reached out through email. But when we got on the phone, uh, basically the first line I said to you, (laughs) and somehow you conveyed just through your writing Mm -hmm. this, and I knew I could say this to you. You talk about church's family. I said, Lee, you old muckety-muck, how you doing? (laughs) I agree. And you and we, and we started talking like um, it's like we were in college together at some right. point or something. I agree with you. Um, you know, and it's Jeff. It's not so, just that we are Christians together, but it's that we're pastors together, right? Exactly. Yeah. There's a camaraderie yeah. among pastors that you are capitalizing on that you're speaking to, and that I just love. I love hanging out with other pastors. Yeah, because it's. Uh, it's a it's a unique calling, right. and I'm sure that you know doctors like to hang out with doctors, and everybody likes you know birds of a feather. But it, as a spiritual leader, you you have to struggle with multiple dimensions right. of who you. I mean, it matters who you are. It matters how you think when you wake up. It matters what your spiritual disciplines are. Right. It matters your personal interactions with your wife and with your neighbors and with your kids and your parents. All these things impact how we do our job, right. and that's not necessarily true. It's not really true of a of a factory worker or a builder or somebody who does this tactile stuff that when they're done building it and you walk into a house, you don't know if that house was built by an angry person or a happy person. That's right. You know, as long as they follow the specs. <laughs> you know, that's right. You, and You don't know that, but we, so that's why I think there's that camaraderie. Yeah, and there's too. no other job like it. Uh, you know, I, I, exactly. I, you're right. I yeah. mean, if a doctor's convention, they, you know, that's one thing. But we have been through stuff. We have stories. We have the weight, the weight of it that my elders didn't understand. I, I went to an elder board meeting one night, and I had a great board and everything. And uh, the hour before, I didn't go home for long, uh, dinner on those nights, and, and I what why I did this, but I went through the church directory and I just started making a list of some of the people there who were sort of on my mind. And I got to the meeting and I said, I just want you to hear, hear this. And I read, you know, this one, I haven't seen this one for a while. She's got a tough thing at work and this marriage. And, you know, I just kind of read down this list. I got done. And the first two reactions were, Lee, you can't worry about all these people. I'm not worried. I'm just saying, this is my job. Yeah. This is what I care about. This is what it is to be a shepherd. Yes. I've, and, and I too have, I have a fantastic leadership team right now at my church. Um, uh, just great elders. Uh, and I remember not recently, I wished I could just walk in and just say to them some of the things that were really burdening my right. heart. And I knew that I really couldn't. Right. And I thought, I don't like the fact that I can't. Didn't didn't Paul weep with the elders yes. and, and he left Ephesus yes. and what was there? And I thought, is you know what's going on here? But I think the difference is the difference is 
the difference between a pastor and an elder in our context. Yes, at least in our context. That's right. In our in our context. And there's just, you know, there's so many, and that's another thing. In leadership and in relational leadership and what we're supposed to be involved in, in spiritually transformational leadership, there's so many variables. I mean, I find this. There's so many variables. You look at a family, and there's so many things that inform what that family's going through, why they do what they do, why other people may look at them and say, well, that's weird, or what's wrong with them, or they need to get their act together. But as a pastor, you look at the family, and all these variables fill in underneath, and you're like, okay, I know why she struggles with right. this. I know why he says the things he says sometimes in public and people are put off by it. I understand that and I have empathy and compassion for him and I want to help him, but he doesn't really like me. He thinks I doesn't like, he thinks I don't like him, but I really do. If he only knew how much he was loved, not just by God, but actually by me and others in the church. And and that's just the one little facet of the diamond. You could you could do that with every person in every family. At least that's how I view right. the people in my church. I don't just see them as a flat. Oh, this is this you know monograph. It's just right. this is it, and they're not just customers. No, no, they're just they're people that are so deep. You can never hardly ever get to the depths of people's lives and relationships and situations and needs and hurts and longings and desires and all of that. I heard. Uh, I had a couple classes years ago in seminary with Warren Wearsby, and he yeah. gave us a line. Uh, he didn't know where it came from. I've since gotten help tracking it down. I can't remember the the, the uh, person, but the line was this: "Be kind, for every person you meet is fighting a great battle." Hmm. And mm-hmm. I I made my memory and my counseling classes memorize it word perfect. Be kind, for every person you meet is fighting a great battle, and. Next to scripture, that's about as good a line as I've ever heard. You know, it's I wrote it in the back of my Bible. I like that. That's so mm-hmm. true. So, Lee, again, I just want to uh, point out, because those of us still in ministry experience FOMO, uh, fear of missing out, <laughs> on <laughs> what, you, what you actually experienced, you right. retired 22 years to, you said, to, to the, the day. day. After after you got there, and you had a huge retirement celebration, yep. well, huge, you know, to to your right. church, and it was uh, it was fun, it was enjoyable, and it was in February of twenty twenty. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's like that's just that perfect. tells you how that's much God loves me. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't imply anything about all those other poor guys that had to leave churches after that. But I got. I, I really had a sweet thing. Yep, that's great. I, I went to a class in New York City for nine days in January of 2020, and got to be all around the city for mm. those nine days. Just fantastic. Had a wonderful time, and then you know, eight weeks later, the whole thing Bam. was shut yep. down. And took me two years before I could get back to another class there. So that, yeah, you were you were definitely blessed, Lee. Uh, give a last word of encouragement to pastors as we land the plane. I just wrote three little columns about the power of blessing, of giving blessings. Yeah, I just believe in benedictions. A lot of churches don't, a lot of pastors don't do it. I just don't understand why we would not do that. God told Aaron, say these words over my people. So I'd say it over, over my 
fellow shepherds. So this is my word. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lee. You bet. I so enjoyed that talk with Lee. I want to remind you of his website, Lee Eklov, L-E-E-E-C-L-O-V dot com. He's got some articles there, and he's got a few, I think a few YouTube videos there as well. And uh, you should check it out. You should check it out. And you could talk to him as well. It, he'd be somebody that you could talk to. He could uh, connect with you uh, through Zoom or even on a phone call. I know he loves to encourage pastors. And my heart in this is that you as a pastor would not be out there all on your own, that you would have people to connect to, that you would know that you could email somebody like me, you could email somebody like Lee. And next week, we're going to have Dave Jacobs on from smallchurchpastor.com and the Small Church Pastor Facebook group. And he's a guy who spends all of his days talking and coaching with particularly small church pastors. Now, regarding the very first ever Coaching for Pastors Mastermind Group, we are going to have a webinar on August the 16th. Dave Bush and I will be joining together in that webinar. And you can find information as it comes out on that at coachingforpastors.org slash mastermind. I believe all that's on there right now is a short five-minute audio clip from me. But as we move through the next week or two, I will get a link up there for you to register for this webinar where you can get all the information on the mastermind that's going to start right after Labor Day and go through this fall semester. It's an opportunity for pastors to get together with other pastors and invest in themselves to take their life to the next level. And I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what that looks like for you. But I think all of us, all of us don't want to live an ordinary life. And if we've been living an ordinary life, we'd like it to be a little extra ordinary. But I think that we need others. We need a team. We need to unite together and get together and draw from each other and give to each other in order to have that extraordinary opportunity. So that's what we're going to do with the Coaching for Pastors Mastermind. Talk about living an extraordinary life and push each other and support each other to whatever next level God has for us. Pastor, it's been great to talk with you today. So good to have Lee on the podcast this weekend. Looking forward next weekend to Dave Jacobs joining us. Until then, I will see you on Monday on the Coaching for Pastors podcast. <music>